Were you expecting this kind of outpouring of people interested in your work when you when you took on this endeavor? We were hoping for it. I don't think we really knew what to expect. I was I was hoping for it. So it, it's turned out really well. Yeah, it's been it's been kind of a whirlwind. It seems like you you popped up on a lot of people's radars and everyone's kind of shocked by what you revealed. Yeah. Absolutely. Um we were sort of prepared for no one to want to talk about it or be interested at all. So, yeah, this was a good surprise. This is a better alternative. Yeah. Especially, how much time did you guys dump into this investigation from start to now? We started in February of 23. So, so it's been almost a year of work. It's almost a year, yeah. Yeah. To have the counter of nobody picks it up, nobody cares, and it kind of just gets swept under the rug would be a little That would have hurt. That would have yeah. stung. But, like, we wanted to just do it kind of like a bucket list item if if we don't do this i think we'll regret it so we decided to try it are you guys still just a two-man operation or do you have yeah a yeah it's, it's just, just two the of two us, of you. me and eric our founder it's a yeah. lot of work for just you guys <laughs> it is i feel like we're each doing like five people's jobs is eric more behind the scenes or is he public facing as well yeah, he's more behind the scenes. I think he's open to doing interviews and everything, but um, it's mainly been me so far. And he's kind of just the brains of everything. He had the idea in the first place, and yeah, he's great. He's the visionary. You guys got the start off of that Nicholas Kristoff article, right? Yeah. The Children of Pornhub, and that kind of sparked a light. Yeah, so Eric read that article. Eric told me to read that article, so I read it and it's something yeah, I I had never really thought of th- what was revealed in the article before. I'd never even thought about it because my you know, I wasn't in the adult industry in any way, like I didn't watch pornography or anything like that. Um, so it was just something I never thought of, but, um, we thought, you know, if, if this is true, this is really going on, if it's still going on, which is our, I guess, hunch, then we should do something about it. Like, let's just try. And so we decided to just see what happened. And you guys started off just funding yourselves. Was there any outside backing with this idea? Not at all. It's just really a passion project. Eric's savings account. Yeah. Still. (laughs) Well, it's, it's crazy that you have this conglomerate and I didn't realize that ALO, MindGeek, Pornhub's parent company was so large and controlled so many of these different porn sites. That was kind of shocking for me. Yeah. ALO is absolutely huge. Essentially, they have a monopoly on North American pornography, hundreds of pornography websites. They're worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I They're not even open about everything that they own, but we know that they, you know, write, shoot, produce, distribute, advertise pornography um, just from start to finish. And at one point they had a work like a functioning VPN service, but I don't know if that's still functioning. 
Um, they do their in-house ads. They have their own ads platform. They've got and all then, their bases covered. Yeah, they have a, yeah, they just, everything's in-house. They really doesn't seem like they rely on anyone else for anything. One of the employees even said that their competitors come to them for help, which is weird. So they have like their technically competitors paying them to help them. That just shows the stranglehold they have on the market. Yeah. So take me back to the beginning. For people that aren't aware of your investigation, Eric reads this article, brings it to you. You guys have this idea that you want to investigate Pornhub right off the bat, or you just want to be involved in uncovering something in this area? Yeah, we want... So Eric was thinking, you know, we should investigate this. We need to absolutely prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this is still occurring, that this isn't just something that, uh, you know, they changed their ways and everything's great now. Um, and he noticed that the adult industry had never really seen undercover journalism before. So that's the method we decided to use. Um, and yeah, it just went from there. We started talking about it in February of 2023 and began getting into the field, actually meeting with people and recording in June of 2023. And most of the recordings took place in Canada, right? Yes, they were uh, recorded in, in Montreal. And yeah, Canada is just across the board. Yeah. Hearing you say that they weren't that aware of undercover investigations almost feels like a foreign concept to me. I mean, if you live in the States and especially if you're on Twitter or anything, you come across Project Veritas, you hear all these stories of people doing these undercover interviews and just getting people to spill their guts about things you would not hear otherwise. But you, that's exactly what you got them to do. Yeah, I really, yeah, you know, come to think of it, I don't really think Canada that I know of has seen undercover journalism in general. I don't think it's become super popular in Canada yet. Um, and then the adult industry, of course, like we just haven't seen them investigated in this way. So I, I really think those two factors were the reasons why they're, uh, the Pornhub employees were so off guard. It was almost a perfect storm to get in there. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Um, you know, there's certain industries here in the U.S. where their employees are already pre-warned about undercover journalists. So a lot of other types of investigations here in the U.S. for other subjects, it's just not as easy to investigate them in an undercover method. And I don't know if they would be as willing to just answer any question. I mean, you pose some difficult questions that you would think would spark somebody to say, hey, what do What's going on here? What are we doing right now? Am I being interviewed? What's what's happening? And they just <laughs> yeah. were more than happy to oblige. Yeah, I think they wanted to talk about their jobs. That's what it seemed. They're happy that someone was finally asking them about their jobs. There was a point where Mike Farley, one of the subjects, in kind of a joking way, asked me if I worked for the government or something. <laughs> uh, but that was really the only question I got. Cut to him now screaming at the mirror saying, I knew it. I knew something was up. Right? Yeah. Why Why Canada? Is that just where these people were localized? I mean, how did you target the individuals that you went after? 
So um, Mon- in Montreal, uh, MindGeek has their headquarters in Montreal. It will now it's called Alo. So MindGeek now rebranded to Alo. It's a parent company of Pornhub. Um, their headquarters and they have a big hub in Montreal, which is why all of our subjects were located there. And we really just use publicly available information from the internet to find out who works there and to see how we could possibly get in contact with them. How did you identify who you wanted to speak with? Was it just ease of access, whoever you could get in touch with? Yeah, kind of. We wanted to talk to as many people as possible. I think we ended up recording like a dozen employees and we have them, we have seven total undercover videos we've released and, um, you know, total in those seven videos, I think there's around a dozen employees that you see recorded there. It's, I mean, it's just, it's so crazy when you think about people love to talk. That's one thing that I've noticed doing this is that if you can put a microphone in front of somebody, they're more than willing to talk about anything. But even if you don't have the microphone, if you're just interested in what somebody has to say, they're more than happy to talk about what they're doing, what their life is like. People want to talk and you get them in this kind of intimate setting where you guys are eating a lot or you're just chatting over drinks and it just, the conversation flows. Were these date formats? How did you get them to meet up with you for the ones that you met in person? Yeah, some of them were date setups. Um, Some of them were more professional, like let's talk about this idea and go get food or whatever setups. Um, Some of them, uh, you see, I think it's like video five or something. I call into the customer care line. So they're literally on duty employees there. Um, I'm posing as an advertiser. Is so all sorts of different ways. Traffic junkie. That was yeah. That one? When yeah. I called traffic junkie, we had another journalist called traffic junkie as well. Um, and in that one, they admitted that if I were, if an advertiser were to upload underage videos, they would not report to the police or suspend the account the videos were uploaded from. Which Which is is crazy. Insane. Yeah. I mean, you hear that and you think, what? Isn't that, that's not written into your guys' bylaws? That's not something you guys work with the police on? It's just, oh, don't say, don't tell. Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like they have that don't ask, don't tell policy so that they can maintain their plausible deniability publicly um sorry if you hear a weird noise no you're good i don't hear anything on my okay, end good um they've really yeah they're they really have taken the public stance of whatever gets uploaded gets uploaded we're a tech platform not a porn platform so we can claim immunity under section 230 that's another interesting aspect that I've heard you talk a lot about is their pivot from we're not necessarily porn. We are a tech conglomerate. And just like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we can't be held responsible for the content that is uploaded because it's not us. We're just hosting all of this stuff. Right. Yeah. And that's their stance. But um, the fact that they employ writers of pornography um shoot the pornography they hire the actors they have the film crews 
they edit it, they decide what's selling um, as far as like genre, they own porn production companies. Uh, I, I don't think there's any legitimate way they could say they're not a pornography company. Yeah, it's harder to make that argument when you are involved at every step of the process before it's uploaded yeah. and after. And you know, it was surprising to me when I was talking to Dylan Rice. He's a senior script writer there. He writes the pornography. Um, he actually told me that a lot of the like the amateur just user uploaded pornography they write for those people who are ju- who just like have accounts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which was shocking. I had no idea either. Yeah, you would think amateur account that it would be unscripted. Yeah, and I think some of them are. Um, but he was like, yeah, for some of them, we we actually write those. Yeah, how are you going to claim Section 230 under that? It's like you're reaching out to yeah, these, you're scripting I, it for them. You're still not involved, you're just tech. Exactly. Um, and I think, so also another thing Dylan said was that like the studio produced content, there's like professional studios, each actor has to be 2257, meaning they keep documentation on their age and consent just to, to verify that they're an adult and they consent to be there. Um, you know, there's problems with that alone, but it's a lot less problematic than just like user uploaded pornography. But he, Dylan claimed that the reason why they don't just make everyone fill out 2257 forms and keep that documentation is because that they view studio produced content as a competitor to user uploaded content. So they want to keep both going. That's the big point of conflict with sites like OnlyFans, right? Yeah. Um, I I would imagine that they view OnlyFans as a competitor as well. I do know that OnlyFans uh, models and, and managers of models will advertise on Pornhub to get people clicking away to, you know, whoever, whoever page um, they're advertising. So in some ways, they do work in tandem, but I would imagine that OnlyFans would be a competitor to Pornhub. I believe it was with Dylan Rice again when you were talking to him, and he started talking about trying to convert people to different markets in a fiscal sense. And the idea, I mean, it makes sense on paper that if you have a thousand pieces of content and you can, you're marketing someone who is only looking at 15%, like, hey, I have 85% sitting over here that they're not looking at. Let me see if I can kind of pose a couple thumbnails, see if I can get them to click on something they wouldn't otherwise click on. And it sounded like for him, that was in relation to, I think the argument he made was like trans content. If we can take a straight person and kind of get them to start clicking on some of our back catalog over here, we can convert them and get market that avenue as well instead of just straight content. Yeah, and a lot of people said, well, that's not how sexuality works. Um, You can't just be influenced into a different sexuality. But as far as what Dylan tells me, I I might beg to differ because he actually said that the main market for um, trans angels, which is one of the sites that he writes for, it's mainly female presenting trans 
people. So, um, but the main audience for that website is straight men, men who watch straight porn, um, you know, previously to subscribing to that website. So, I, you know, I'm no scientist, I'm no expert, but I guess it boils down to the nature versus nurture argument, which will probably be argued to the end of time. But I guess my stance on that would be sometimes it's nature and sometimes it's nurture. Like why it it probably isn't just like one all the time. Do you think some of that is these individuals aren't straight and just haven't been presented with the content thus far? Or do you think there actually is that rate of conversion where you can kind of edge them on one side of the scale? I don't know. It's, uh, I wish I knew, I don't know, but, um, yeah, that kind of like poses more questions for me. Cause it's like, okay, well, if someone who thinks they're straight, but isn't really straight, is never presented with content that would pique their interest to make them not straight. Are they straight? Or, you know, are, are do they just never know they're not straight? It's just like, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to gauge. It's weird. Yeah. Like, I don't know who gets to make that judgment call, but I, regardless the bottom line, I think it's wrong to try to skew someone's sexuality um, and influence someone's sexuality for the sake of profits. Like, that's pretty horrible. And with such an intimate thing as porn, I mean, we all recognize that with social media, these platforms can start a trend or can amplify a trend and then that takes hold at the greater public. But with porn, I've always wondered how much of that is also in play. You know, you had these emergence of kind of these fringe things like stepmom porn was huge or this stuck porn. And I've always wondered, okay, is that societal that people are just edging this way or is that being amplified in these platforms and then it just takes hold? Yeah, who's to say? Um, That's something I'm kind of interested in finding out through further investigations. There was one employee that I recorded who said that he was personally really, really bothered by how much incest porn was being pushed by the company and that he actually thinks it could cause someone to really um, take action in that way in real life. And he, he said it was really bothersome. Um, I would also argue that the teen category is really messed up and that it could, it could really cause someone, um, to take action on those things in real life. And even just take the aggressive nature that it seems to be trending where you have choking, you have physical violence coming into play in porn. Where does that lead? Yeah, I mean, I think for some people, it really does cause them to want to act those things out in real life. And I think for some people, it maybe it doesn't. But I know for a fact that I've gotten multiple direct messages from people who, of course, wanted to remain anonymous 
um, saying that they used to be addicted to pornography. They needed more and more extreme content to keep them their interests and um, to keep it exciting for them. And it caused them to want to act these things out in real life, including abuse of women. Um, one person even claimed that it made him want to like kill a woman and he's had a really, really long recovery process from that. Uh, and it's taken quite a toll on him. And now of course he's not going to go out and kill anyone, but it really bothered him that these thoughts were entering his mind that he was fantasizing about murdering someone. Um, after having a sexual encounter. And how many people are addicted to porn where it's just, it becomes that funnel that they can't escape and they start going to the darker and darker trenches of that? I think it's probably one of the most common addictions in the world. I don't know the exact numbers, but um, just based on, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I grew up in the digital age. And as a kid, I was around kids who were addicted to porn. In elementary school, um, which is really, really scary. And I can't imagine how it is now because, you know, and when I was in elementary school, yeah, kids sort of had smartphones, but mainly it was like just either their computer at home, or the family computer at home that they were watching on. Um, and now every kid has their own iPad or Chromebook or whatever it is. So it's really, really scary. And one of the employees I recorded, Mike Farley, um, boasted 180 unique visitors a day onto Pornhub, which is a lot. And I believe it still sits at the eighth most visited website in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm 26. And I can remember back when Two Girls, One Cup hit the scene. And I was on <laughs> at baseball yeah. practice. It might have been Little League. And some kid busted out his phone and started showing everybody. And that was my introduction to that. And that's another one mm. of those things that just was blown up. But you I think about that seeing too. that as a kid. Yeah, I remember that too. All the boys were talking about it. Um, it's something that is so unavoidable now. I don't really think there is a way to function in like normal society. If you send your kids to school, even if you homeschool and your, your kids have friends, which they should, and you go to their house, I don't think there's a way to avoid them being exposed to pornography in some way. Um, so I really take the stance that parents should start teaching their children how to identify what pornography is and how to avoid it and how to report uh, if someone exposes it to them uh, in a safe way um, and how to explain that to your kids in an age-appropriate way. I've become a huge, huge supporter of not trying to just hide what it is from kids. Which is where we're at currently. You have parents who give their kids the sex talk. They talk about drugs and alcohol. They talk about cigarettes, all of these other bad things. And porn is just almost not on the radar. It's culturally, yeah. everyone knows that it's, there's a lot of use out there, but it's not necessarily talked about unless you hit that incel culture where you're just constantly in the state of porn addiction and you hit that extreme edge. Then people recognize, okay, this is a problem. But there's a threshold yeah. between 
just average societal use and that? I think, yeah, people and, and parents tend to shrug off porn use um, in their kids because it is so difficult to talk about and it is very private. It's a very private, weird matter to talk about. It's so common that I think parents kind of just throw up their hands and say, well, everyone's doing it. You know, it's not like he's going to get a girl pregnant, I think is their reasoning. Um, but, you know, my stance is just because it's normal doesn't mean it is not detrimental to your child's health and development. And that's another crazy aspect is you had these higher ups in these companies acknowledging, yeah, it's probably not great. Porn addiction is, is a real thing. And maybe the extent that we're pushing this isn't ethical, but what are you going to do? This is exactly. the business model. It makes a lot of money. So it makes a lot of money. Classic. And we can't stop that flow, so it just is what it is. Right. I think, you know, Mike Farley was the one who was talking about that the most, and he mirrors Jordan Peterson's view on pornography, that um, we really don't know the full implications that it has health-wise and society-wise, uh, that it's not normal, it's not healthy, it hurts relationships, and it is a breach of trust in a relationship if you do use porn. Um, the fact that Mike is a senior employee there, he's worked there for 11 years, and he's saying this was very telling. But he definitely views it as there's a demand, and we're just supplying the product. So it makes a lot of money. Like, what are you going to do if if we don't? supply the product someone else will but the ease of access that porn has now has made it so much worse these are not the same thing as the days of playboy and um you know people can argue the whole playboy thing to death too but i'm not going to the digital age of pornography is so much different than playboy i mean it's just not the same Everyone can do it from their phones in the bathroom. Um, it, they don't have to sneak anywhere to go access the content. It is just right at your fingertips. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can find it. It's and at any scary. point in time. At any point there's in time. No, there's no bar of access. At school. No. And, you know, you could put all the parental controls you'd like. Um there are still sites, like even Spotify has been reported to have pornographic videos on them being shown, not shown in schools, but kids accessing them in schools. Um, and even if you are successful with the parental controls, which is good, I encourage them, uh, other kids aren't going to protect your kid. And that's just it. I was exposed to porn at eight years old by a friend's older brother on a play date. Um and they they had a you know it was a good family nice mom and dad um i had a good family great mom and dad my mom would have never been okay with me being exposed to that but you know there it was on a play date and there's nothing i could do about it and i didn't know what it was i didn't know i should say something about it and so it bothered me for a very long time 
Well, eight years old, it's crazy to be exposed to something like that. Yeah, it is. And I think coupled with the hypersexualization of girls from boys at school from such a young age, um, I was learning what sex acts and, and private parts were from boys at school um, in elementary school. And I know for a fact it's because they're watching pornography. It's not like they're acting these things out with children in, in real life. At least I hope they weren't. But yeah, it the digital age has changed things. Um, kids are less innocent. Kids are committing more sex crimes toward each other now. We just had that report out of the UK. Um, forget the exact numbers, but essentially kids are committing more and more sex crimes against each other every year, which is just sad. Um, it's scary. I don't know where this is going. Brave new world, it feels like. Yeah, that's a scary thought, right? I wonder, extrapolate outwards, you know, we're in an interesting time where marriage rates are declining, divorce rates are rising quality of relationships, I would say, is probably diminishing as well. And you have to think how much of that is tied to just porn use in general. This idea that at this current point in time, you can see, you know, thousands of the most attractive people you've ever seen having sex. Whereas in the past, you might see, you might only have sex with a few individuals over your entire life. And now all of that is in your pocket and thousands of videos are being added all the time. Exactly. Um, I, I don't know the numbers. I don't know if we'll ever know accurate numbers. Uh, what I can say is I get lots of comments. I get lost, lots of messages from men and women saying that porn ruined my marriage. Um, porn is the reason why I have X, Y, and Z problem. And um, the adult industry likes to gaslight the public and say that actually pornography is not the problem. Pornography is healthy. Um, when it's used in a healthy way, it actually benefits society. And porn is not infidelity because it's all in your imagination. It's a fantasy. It's just on your screen. <laughs> it's like, well, those are real people doing real sex acts and people are learning to be more sexually attracted to pixels on a screen than they are to their real life partner. And that is sad. That and is it, devastating. Does it create some weird act of voyeurism where you're, if you're going long periods of time where your only contact to that is through your screen, you're not engaging in actual real world relations with the opposite sex or with the same sex you're only watching it from afar. What does that do to you long-term? Um, I, I don't know. I know it can't be healthy. I mean, I think I, I'm with Mike Farley here. We don't know the implications of this stuff. It can't be good. It can't be healthy. And the fact that I'm not aware of a really in-depth study into it, um, I think we need one. I'm sure there is one going on. I don't know if the results will be out yet. 
But this is something that we need because we know that fertility rates are declining in men and women. Um, We know that birth rates are going down rapidly. Marriage rates down, divorce rates up. Um, And with the rise of the digital age, I don't think that is a coincidence. Might not be the only factor, but I really do think that people are so um, ingrained in ingrained in their screens for one reason or another, a big reason being pornography, but maybe another reason, social media, whatever. Um, They're not in the real world anymore and engaged with the people in their life. And I wonder where that goes now that we have VR being introduced and you can put on this headset and now you can watch VR porn and it's just a whole new frontier. Yeah, I just heard about it the other day that they're coming out with like, um, I think it's Apple's coming out with a VR headset where you can like have multiple screens and and work on like video calls and like see people in the room with you. And it's scary because I am, you know, against that kind of stuff. I think it's harmful. I think it's stupid and I think it's unnecessary but also I think about how cool it would be to see that. And, and my instinct is like, well, I want to try. So it's intoxicating even to the people who like have a stance that's against like over techifying everything. Um, so I think we're in real danger because great people are, are falling for the trap of just being glued to their screens all day. And, I can't say I'm any different because I'm constantly on Twitter and Instagram and um, doing one thing or another in my screen all day. I'm, I most recently had to start just turning off all screens at like 6 p.m. It's been amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different. It's different. Like when I was growing up, I had like, I had a phone, but I wasn't in my phone constantly. It was just like basically a texting. And, but I was definitely on the computer a lot, but I had to be at a computer to use the screen really for, you know, computer games or whatever. But now just everything is on the phone. I can't imagine growing up with like TikTok. I feel so sad for kids. Yeah, it's a scary time for the younger generation, I think. And I don't know how much of that has started to actualize yet when you have these kids. And you think about the crazy things that you did when you were a kid. Mm. You're like, oh man, thank God we didn't video any of that. Are these lessons where we had to learn and face hardship and then grew through that. But kids now, you're documenting every aspect of your life. And once it's out there, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah, we have this um, trend of eight and 10 year old girls being obsessed with really, really elaborate skincare. And they look like 20 year olds after they're done doing their makeup. And then they do a little dance that's like disturbingly sexual sometimes. Uh, it is really scary. And, and there is also a trend that I'm seeing among influencer types, usually young girls, and they talk kind of like this. And now I'm seeing that in real life with 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I'm seeing it in real life with kids. Like girls are really thinking, if I talk like this, uh, I'm going to be more cool. And it is so disturbing on so many levels to me because these girls are so young. Um, and it makes them seem really stupid. And I think there probably is like a sexual element to it as well. But really what I see when someone talks like that is like you're really uneducated when really these are smart people. They're just being influenced by these trends to talk like this. And those (sighs) trends blow up and then that just starts to influence at a greater and greater scale. Exactly. Um, I don't know what the social media trends are for young guys but for young girls definitely i'm starting to see them talk really funny um and and we'll see where that goes i mean it's going to be a scary day when the you know women in the police force pulling us over when we're speeding are talking like this yeah that's going to be hard right? to take them seriously yeah i and i'm i'm beginning to hear Serve like customer service people on the phone when I need something, talk a little bit more Gen Z and use some slang terms and things like that. And it's it's kind of funny, but it's also like, well, where is this going? When does it yeah, end? Where are we going as a society right yeah. now? Yeah. Especially you touched on the idea of makeup, which you know, I don't think when I was a kid. Obviously, I'm not a girl, but I don't recall girls, especially in elementary school, wearing makeup that much. It kind of popped up in middle school, but now it seems like every kid has access to makeup or is watching makeup videos or is figuring out how to do eyeliner and all of this stuff. And the age threshold on that is getting diminished constantly, especially with TikTok. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I I definitely, you know, in middle school, I I wore makeup. I started wearing makeup probably in like seventh or eighth grade. Um, And I saw other girls starting to wear makeup and experimenting with it. Uh, But one of the things, which is, I'm glad you brought this up because kids are starting to look more mature at a younger age, especially girls, because of all these techniques they're taught to do on YouTube or whatever. Um, Jenna Rolf, one of the employees of Traffic Junkie that I recorded, uh, mentions that one of the criteria they use to make that judgment call on whether a girl in an ad was underage or not is whether she was wearing makeup, which is scary. And, and Jenna goes on and says, you know, I, I wore makeup when I was younger to try and look older. That's very common it was really scary. You know, she she expresses that she was really, really angry at that direction she got from higher-ups on, you know, oh, is the girl wearing makeup? Does the girl have a piercing? Does the girl have tattoos? If, if so, then she's over 18. You could pass the ad through. And she was actually so disturbed by this guidance that she quit she did the right thing. I think she's the only employee we've spoken to so far that has done the right thing. So I really commend her for that. Um, But 
I was, you know, wearing makeup as a middle schooler. I even faked a belly piercing when I was 13 in middle school um, because I, I like saw older girls who had belly rings and I was like, oh, those are cute. And I faked one and I walked around school with it. So everyone thought I had a real belly ring. And I'm just thinking that if, if this is a criteria they're using for ads on Pornhub, then we're in real trouble because there's 13, 14-year-old girls who look like they could be 18 at this point. The verification aspect of these platforms was really alarming. And that came through in your videos, the idea that they really don't have any protection for these people. And there's almost a willingness to look the other way in some sense of, well, we ran this rough check. They have Maybe they have a piercing, maybe they're wearing makeup, so they're probably okay. Let's push it through. Right. They have no way to verify the ads whatsoever. They don't require any sort of documentation on the advertiser or anyone in the video. Uh, routinely, Jenna Rolf, one of the compliance employees, uh, who used to work there said she would get calls from girls saying, this is me, please take this down. I didn't consent to this. Um, she said, we could easily have managers of underage OnlyFans models advertising on there and no one would ever know. Um, what you think would sound alarm bells and people would hear that and think, okay, that's not good. We need to figure out a way to stop this. Even just a the company level, you think they would want to address that? All they want to address is what they think they're going to get caught for. And Mike Farley says, you don't want to spend more money on making less money. So the more compliant you are, the less money you're going to make. And so when he brought up these moderation issues to executives, they told him to F off and shut up, in his words. And stop saying anything because that would cost money for them to make less money. And it's really all they're concerned about. And so they're going to try to get away with whatever they think they can. And the stats around the ID implementation, I think it was when Louisiana passed that bill requiring ID, Pornhub's traffic dropped 80%, was it? Yeah, so Pornhub reported a 80% drop in traffic to the site in Louisiana after the ID law for users was enacted. Um, so their whole argument with more and more of these ID laws passing in U.S. states is, well, we're just going to protest by blocking access to the ent entire site in that state because they don't want the ID laws to pass. And I think they're probably just relying on people to use a VPN to access Pornhub. So um, it, it, we'll, we'll see what happens. I hope that more of these states jump on board. These laws are being passed almost unanimously on both sides of the aisle in a lot of these states. So that's something that's really good to see. Does it seem like there's a lot of that support from both sides that they want to address this issue? Yeah, yeah, it does. It seems like this is something that actually both sides of the aisle are coming together on, which is really cool. Um, and I think it was 
North Carolina, it passed pretty much unanimously. A lot of these states, that is what's happening. Um, so yeah, I think we are going to see an increase in ID laws. I know that Europe is adopting some as well. People always like to say, oh, Europe's better because they're more sex positive and, and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, Europe wants to protect their children too from being able to access pornography. So good on Europe. That seems like it's one of the attack vectors is this idea of body positivity, but almost this free sexual movement that you shouldn't restrict that, that people should just have unfettered access. And in that you acknowledge, well, that means it, it's going to apply for children as well. Yeah. There's no safeguards in place um, in most places for anyone. It uh, doesn't matter how old you are to access pornography. Um, and I guess in the context of Pornhub specifically, there's nothing. I mean, um, there's like a little banner at the top that's like, are you 18? And anyone would click yes. You know, any 12-year-old would be like, oh, I'm going to click yes. So, and you know, these employees of Pornhub some of them even encourage kids to watch pornography. Uh, I talked to Sil Fernandez. He's a production coordinator uh, under ALO. And then Dylan Rice, the script writer, both express positive views toward 12-year-olds watching porn, specifically gay and trans porn, to try to find their sexualities. Um, and they view it as a helpful educational thing, which is disturbing. How did you keep your composure when you're hearing all of this? You're sitting across from these people. Um, it's going to sound weird, but it was kind of easy to keep my composure because I knew I was on the right track. So I wanted to, of course, just keep asking questions and just let them talk. So in the moment, I wasn't angry. I know that's weird to say. But afterwards, of course, you watch it back and you're like, oh my gosh. After all the adrenaline has left your body, like, I can't believe they said that. That's crazy. Well, you've got that acting background. So I'm sure that that kind of helped and came into play a little bit where you could just stay in the moment. Yeah, the acting background definitely helps a lot. I think more with confidence than anything. Um, it's really not that hard to do, you know, to do undercover journalism. I'm not making up some wild story and some wacky character I have to portray. I'm really just talking like I'm talking to you, you know, I'm just asking questions. Um but the confidence to jump in, in front of someone and ask those questions, yeah, acting definitely helped from the days of um, being a kid and walking into a room full of grown-ups and performing in front of them. That was scary as a kid sometimes. Were you, did you and Eric, when you guys went out to Montreal, did you think that it was going to be this big? And as you start interviewing these people, was it just... I mean, were you guys shocked or did you have some inclination of what to expect? We were shocked for sure. Um, we had a 
feeling that these were the sorts of things that were going on, but I guess some of the specifics shocked us. Uh, specifically the loophole, just having Mike Farley describe it and then having him say not only that he recorded a meeting where he addressed it so that it would be off his chest and not his responsibility if they ever got in trouble for it, but also that he said, I would never be able to defend this in court and that they have corporate attorneys coach them on essentially how to lie under oath. <laughs> so that was shocking. And, and then about wanting 12-year-olds to watch pornography and marketing gay and trans porn to straight viewers, as well as um, creating ads that uh, target pedophiles and young teens. That was shocking too. So I think that we we didn't really know the specifics of what we were going to get, but the general idea um, is is what we were suspicious of. How did you guys know when it was enough? Like when was the decision to stop the interviews and then go public with everything that you'd culminated? That's a good question. I. Th- the goal from the beginning was to talk with at least like eight to 10 employees. After we talked to, it had to be like 10 or 12. We we're like, okay, I think it's time to start releasing because we didn't want to release and it'd be like, oh, this was filmed a year ago. What's changed since then, you know? So we wanted to get on it. And I think we started release. Yeah, we started releasing in September and I was recording in the field from June through September, I want to say. Yeah, you don't, you almost don't want to miss your opportunity once you do get it, right? You're kind of fighting against time in that way. Yeah, exactly. But I'm glad we got to the amount of people we did Um, because we didn't want it to be something where we just got like one guy saying something where it was like, okay, well, maybe he's saying some good things, but I love how we talked to someone who's uh, a leader in product management. We talked to a writer. We talked to a production coordinator. We talked to someone in compliance on the ad side. We talked to customer care people on the ad side. Uh, we talked to people who had acted as, you know, kind of content moderator people. So um, I like the diversity in, in roles that we spoke to, and essentially they all had stories that aligned so yeah you guys definitely covered all of your bases you got a well-rounded story it's not something someone can point to and say oh well they only talk to this sector of people working in this field you guys talked to a lot of different people and it wasn't just one person saying a bunch of bombshells it was it i mean all of it was crazy and then you put it together in this puzzle and it's like oh wow this is just endemic to this business model Yeah, um, I think Eric did a really good job envisioning what the story needed in order to be credible um, and well-rounded. But uh, I think that it's not even over. I think we're going to continue to investigate the adult industry, uh, maybe not just Pornhub, but other companies as well. So we're going to keep going. Well, it's good to hear it. 
did you, I know that you had some background in investigating with your dad, right? He was an investigator. Yeah. So my dad was a private investigator, I guess technically still is. Um, and he would send me on things just to like, okay, go in this business and ask them a bunch of questions because we we're trying to find this out. So that's what I would do. And it was fun. You know, it was fun for me, relatively low risk stuff. Um, and that coupled with the acting background gave me the confidence to pursue undercover journalism. Um, but yeah, kind of a funny career background that's led me here, I guess. Yeah. Little did he know he was helping give you those tools to drop this bombshell. Yeah, exactly. He's probably like, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> why the pivot away from acting? I know you've talked a little bit about it on your socials. It seems mm -hmm. like you had a pretty stable career. It was a direction that you could have continued to pursue and then you kind of pivot away from that. Yeah, there were so many reasons that just coincided with each other. Um, but a big one was just maturing. Uh, going from a girl into a woman, I think, made me realize like, hey, what are my motivations for pursuing acting? And I did think about it. And I think that they were selfish and self-centered motivations for pursuing a career in acting. I think there's a lot of actors who are in it for the right reasons. Um, but I don't think I was. I definitely loved acting. I love the craft, as they say. But I... I think that it came, a lot of it came from a place of vanity and pursuing my dream I had when I was a little girl and dreams change. So a lot of it was just like, you know what, I'm going to be, you know, 60 and 70 years old one day and I want to be able to look at myself and, and really have done what I want and what I felt was contributing to society and me prancing around on screen once in a while probably isn't it. <laughs> so that would, was, is what I would say is my main reason. How old were you when you started to get those ideas that maybe you want to pivot away and look um, for something greater? I was... Probably like 18, but I think I officially left when I was 20 or something like that. Did you know, was investigative journalism on your radar when you made that pivot as an avenue that you wanted to pursue? No, I, the last thing I ever wanted to be was a journalist. Ever. Funny how life I thought works it was out so sometimes. boring. Yeah. Like during school, you know, we'd have career day and things like that. It was like the last thing I was interested in ever. Um, I definitely wanted to do something more artistic or, or whatever you call it, but I just don't think I was cut out for that in the long run. It's the life of an actor is kind of a life of self-worship. And I think that I wasn't, um, I just wasn't in it for the right reasons and yeah.
Yeah, it's got to be challenging in that way where, I mean, you're essentially being picked for all of your roles and you have to put this presentation forward. And if you don't get picked, what does that do to your self-esteem? Especially you hear the stories that you have to go through a ton of auditions before you might get a role. And you're just being constantly hit in the face with all of these no's, especially as a kid. I mean, you weren't 18 going into acting and saying, okay, I want to do this as an adult. You were a kid and you were in that world. Yeah, it was tough, like being rejected, going to auditions at like 14 years old and like literally being told like you're not good enough. (laughs) Yeah, that hurt. But like in the long run, I think it gave me a thicker skin. But for sure, uh, I don't have children currently, but if and when I do one day, I don't think I'd want them to be subject to that um, in that way. Just because it is an industry made by adults, made for adults, um, and mainly adults work in it. And even if your kid is fortunate enough not to experience sexual abuse um, in the industry, your kid's going to turn into an adult. And I... I don't think that's a good thing for for most kids. It really does seem like some children, uh, child actors are like incredible, just made to be actors. You know what I mean? I don't think that's like 99.9% of kids. So I, I think there's a lot of children who suffer um, just from not being able to experience childhood. And you see the horror stories from that. Even the ones that are child actors and are incredibly successful. They go through a lot in those later years. And you have to think, well, you're growing up in this weird atmosphere and it's not real life. Yeah, it really, I mean, um, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who could just pick up a script and be amazing. I really think that those kids do exist. Um, But I wasn't. I had to work very hard and get you know, chewed out in acting classes and yelled at by teachers and lots of tears in order to even just do like a light comedy script well. Um, So my personal experience in the industry, lots of inappropriate situations I should not have been in as a kid, even as like a preteen. Um... I don't see how a kid could go through the industry in Hollywood without being put in some sort of situation like that. Even if it's not like an adult physically touching your child, I can't see a way that your kid's not going to be asked to act out a scene that is inappropriate because most of them are, in my opinion. Um, I was being given sexual scenes at, you know, uh, ages. 13 to act out and I would in my teens 15 16 I was routinely given sexually explicit material to act out um and I a lot of times I like wasn't able to do it because I didn't know what these things were in real life so that's harmful to a child and I don't I don't really see a way 
that an acting teacher would be okay with limiting the material so much that like a good parent would be comfortable with it because I've looked back at all the auditions, all the scripts, all the scenes I've done like in my email um, and I've only been able to find a handful that I would allow my child to act out. So That's the material is so limited. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, sexualizing kids in this porn aspect, but Hollywood's almost notorious for that as well. And just like in porn, it's kind of just swept under the rug. Yeah. And I think that a really harmful idea that's put in child actors' heads is that if this scene or if this script doesn't have cursing, drug use, sexual content, um, like very, very adult things, then this isn't a serious script. And if you're not able to do those types of things convincingly on screen, then you're not a serious actor. Like suddenly, you know, family-friendly, wholesome content is like, okay, well, that's that's for like cheap actors, you know. Yeah, you're and, above but that. that's the mindset. And I had to decondition myself. And you're putting a kid in that position. How are they going to say, no, I don't feel comfortable acting this out in front of an acting coach or worse in front of a casting director? Like, yeah, there no to get kid is going to stand up for themselves. It's just not going to happen. I've never seen that happen. Was it hard to cut? You touched on this idea of deconditioning yourself to that. Was that a challenging process? Yeah, and I'm still kind of in the process of it. I realize things or will remember something and think, oh my gosh, I think that that person was trying to target me in some way or, oh my gosh, like that was a really inappropriate situation that I never told my mom about. Things pop up all the time for me or, oh my gosh, that's horrible, you know? I remember doing that scene. Like I uh, the other day I remember doing a scene in an audition. I think I was 18 at this point, but I had to simulate like literal sex in an audition, so inappropriate, bouncing up and down on a chair during like for the audition. So that tape is out there somewhere, so that's, you know, nice to know, very disturbing. I just don't think that's appropriate on any level. I'm glad I wasn't under 18 when that happened, but still like asking someone to simulate sex to see if they're going to get the job or not. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. (laughs) Is it weird when you see yourself in those roles, like on modern family or you see yourself in these past characters and they're just, they're still out there kind of just floating around like that? It is weird. It feels like another life. It almost feels like that's another girl. Um, but I like 99% of my on-screen experiences where it's like a actual TV show on a network, they were great experiences uh, that I think back on very fondly. 
most of the inappropriate things I experienced were just like in a class or during a photo shoot um, or whatever it was. So I'm overall, I look back on things fondly, um, but would I subject my child to it? No, I would not. Yeah, it's always, it's fascinating when you have these parents who maybe it's not the child's decision to go into this field, but the parents really want them to do it. And they're kind of both a parent, but also kind of talent management and running interference for their kid and trying to get them into these roles. That always feels a little dicey. I saw so much of that. Yeah, so much of that. And the moms could be really mean too. <laughs> like the kids would usually be pretty nice, but the moms who like thought that you were her daughter's competition because you're around the same age or whatever, like they got nasty. I feel that same way about those beauty pageants for kids mm -hmm. and those pageant moms. You hear those horror stories of it's just cutthroat and you're, you're sexualizing your kid for what end to get them on TV, to get them to win this beauty pageant. What, what is the, I don't see the end goal for that. Why would you want to put your kid through this for a trophy? Yeah, it's sad. I knew multiple moms who um, got their daughter's plastic surgery and breast augmentations when they're like 15. That's crazy. Yeah. So, and that was something like relatively normal that we would see. And, and usually the daughter would deny it and be like, no, but everyone knew it was true type of thing. And just sad. Like you think about, you know, hopefully they, they come out of that life and realize what they went through wasn't normal or, or good. Um, but if they do, stay in that life and and what's their life going to look like at um you know 20 30 40 i don't know and how do you work through all of that it's yeah. not just can you make it to the other side Your now you have all this to deal with body was permanently altered when you were 15 years old just for the sake of better. aesthetics yeah and you girls with you know lips nose done all sorts of you know, needles in their face and, and boob jobs and lipo. Jesus. I don't know. How do you, how do you get a doctor to agree to that? That's crazy. Yeah, that's not great. And I can't imagine that that has gotten better. If anything, I would probably guess that that's more apparent than when you were doing it. Yeah, I think it probably is more, more apparent now. Um, it was kind of, at least it, I think it was just starting to become pretty normal when I was growing up because social media, it wasn't like new, but it was a new phenomenon that people were like living their lives on social media. So now that that's been on the scene for years, it's probably a lot worse. Yeah. Kind of an interesting turn where you go from that realm to now. I'm going to go undercover and I'm going to start exposing some things and I really take this pivot. Yes, definitely. It was a big life change and 
I didn't tell like my old Hollywood friends what I was doing, but when I disappeared, I definitely lost a lot of friends just because if you leave the industry, you're seen as like a quitter and a loser, even though no one will like say it to your face. People are like, oh, quitter sucks, you know? That toxic reinforcement of we're all in this together. We have to go through the suck together. Yeah, I mean, it was sad. Like, there are so many families who moved to Hollywood from, like, Louisiana or wherever they're from, South Carolina, Arkansas. And when they would go back to their home state because they decided to quit, it was just like a cultural thing where the whole attitude was like, oh, guess they didn't make it. And people were really mean about it. <sighs> Which is crazy because you, it's not even that you quit. I mean, you were in TV shows, you were doing these things. So to say that you quit, you just, you change directions, but it wouldn't be looked at it in that way because everyone's trying to get to the top spot. Everybody wants to be in a blockbuster movie. Yeah, I mean, I worked, I had my, I was mildly successful. I mean, I got on some pretty big name TV shows and had recurring roles and everything. I did pretty well, um, but definitely, yeah, I'm probably seen as like a quitter, <laughs> which is fine. Um, I mean, technically I quit, like I left, but Really, I just, I couldn't see a way forward because everything I was being asked to do was against my newfound, I guess, moral compass. I was being asked to do a lot of sexual stuff, a lot of just gratuitous language and like, I don't want to, like in 30 years, I'm going to watch this and when I have kids and they're going to see their mom like effing this and effing that and, you know, this and that. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then there's a lot of like, like spirit conjuring kind of stuff, like witchy supernatural things where um, it was meant to be like dark, like, you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch type of stuff where I was like, you know, I'm just not comfortable auditioning for these things anymore. And eventually my agent did just drop me. Because they're like, well, if you're not going to go on the auditions, then there's no point in having you. It's interesting hearing that you had that moral compass. Was that, did that come from your parents? Was that something that was just inside of you? Because again, you go back to the idea that people will kind of forfeit their morality or whatever ideals they hold to get the role. Like, okay, I'm just going to yeah, do what I have to do to get Yeah, and there was a point spot. where that was totally me. I was willing to do that. There is not very many things I would turn down um, growing up. But I think once I hit like 20, I was like, you know what? I'm thinking about my future now. I see myself being a mother and a wife and I'm going to be so embarrassed if I continue down this road and just do like crazier and crazier things because that's where it was going. Um so I was like, well, there's no way forward. If I restrict myself to only doing what's appropriate, I'm never going to work because <laughs> there's nothing appropriate. So I'm just going to peace out. 
Do you come from a religious background? I was raised going to church, um, but I definitely was not a Christian. I am now. Uh, I was, you know, I thought I was a Christian growing up. I don't think I really had an understanding of Christianity, even though I went to church. But I think the events of 2020 made me realize, like, okay, the world isn't stable. Things are not going well. (laughs) And I am a little tiny ant worm thing that could be crushed by anything at any given moment. So um, that's kind of the gist of my conversion, I guess. And yeah, it was... I know it was a huge factor in what made me finally leave for good, leave Hollywood for good, and take that leap of faith into a completely different career. I think the past few years did that for a lot of people. The idea that this this system isn't as stable as we think it is, that there's a lot of craziness out there and everything can kind of change up on a dime. Yeah. Sorry if I'm fiddling. I'm plugging my computer in because I see it's warning me. Oh, no worries. Did you have, I wanted to ask, did you have any prior experience in investigation, like investigative journalism or had you done any sort of exposés like this prior to this I've never done an expose like this. This is, sorry. (laughs) I'll come back in a second. No worries. One of the hazards of doing remote interviews. Yes. <laughs> this was my first public expose ever. Um, I had done some undercover work previously, but nothing like this for sure. Um, this is just something that I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to pursue content like this, subject matter like this. So I'm going to do it and decided to do it in a very public way. Because, um, well, for quite a few reasons, but it's never really been done before. We just wanted to do something that people hadn't really seen. Um, it's quite a new idea for an underco- undercover journalist to like investigate and then talk about it afterwards. So we're like, let's just try it. We'll see what happens. Kind of a trial by fire. I mean, you guys really jumped into the deep end. Yeah. And what's funny is a lot of it, it's like... Nothing was really that calculated. It was really like, um, well, we only have two people, so someone's got to do it. Did Eric, was he out there in Montreal with you? Yes. Yeah, Eric was. He kept an eye on me just to make sure that Yeah, probably good to have some backup. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Did he have any background in any of this? So Eric actually has a tech background background originally he used to work in silicon valley he was a software engineer um and he just really has a passion for exposing um like pornography and and sexual exploitation through pornography and and sexual exploitation through tech in general he he saw this issue early on earlier on than I really caught on to it. Um, just the way that things are going with everyone going digital for their entire lives, for everything happening in their life, you know? Yeah. I think that 
Nicholas Kloff's article, I believe that came out quite a few years ago, didn't it? Yeah, that came out in 2020. Uh, I think at the right at the end of 2020, I want to say. Yeah, I haven't read it. I tried to read it on New York Times, but they have that little paywall. Ah, uh, yeah, and I am yeah, basically opposed to that. No, I get that. Yeah, basically, it details victims' struggles to get their abuse content taken down from Pornhub. A lot of the abuse happened when the victims were underage, um, and Pornhub just didn't take them down, didn't respond to the requests, or like really sent the victims on a wild goose chase, and it just never got taken down. So um, I think now they have rectified some of that, but even still, we get reports of you know this person's video still circulating or whatever, and. Um, the big issue is there's really advanced technology available to restrict people from uploading copyrighted material. So, you know, say like I was to upload The Lion King on YouTube, YouTube wouldn't be having any of that. It's it's fingerprinted, so they're going to take it down. But um, with these underage, these illegal videos, these non-consensual videos, that technology, even though Pornhub has it, they're very slow to apply it. Um, and so we're still looking for more transparency on how much they are applying that technology outside of copyrighted materials. So, Yeah, the idea of things like revenge porn, mm -hmm. I think, are especially egregious. Because once, I mean, once that gets up and is out there... How do you put that genie back in the bottle? Yeah, you basically can't. Um, and it's horrible. There's so many ways someone can be sexually exploited online. We're seeing more and more reports of revenge porn, even AI-generated pornography, um, voyeurism. More and more, we're seeing you know Airbnbs or hotel rooms rigged up, and and people staying there just don't know. Um, as well as sexploitation, where usually um, an underage kid is contacted by a trafficker, say through like Snapchat or something like that, and they're threatened until the child agrees to send them a sexual video and then they keep threatening and threatening saying, well, if you don't send me another one, then I'm going to release this. I know your mom, I'll send it to her. I know all your friends, I'll send it to them. So um, that's how a lot of children are targeted and that's how a lot of children are trafficked. People don't realize like so much trafficking and abuse happens in the home not only by family members, very sadly, but by people contacting your child through the computer or through their phone. Because the, there's people posing as girls from their school, so they think they're sending something to a girl who likes them, and then they quickly realize it's not the case, and the person just keeps threatening them with these videos. Um, it's awful. There's two teenage boys actually suing Twitter right now back in 2020. They were um, exploited by a trafficker online and videos of them when they were 13 circulated on Twitter and Twitter refused to take them down. 
when their families contacted the platform. So uh, that's an ongoing suit. Yeah, how do you justify that? It's, it's, I, it defies explanation. I mean, the family of one of the boys contacted Twitter and said, these, this is my son. He was 13 in this video. And that's his friend, also 13 in the video. You have to take this down. And Twitter responded and said, we have reviewed the content and have determined it is not a violation of our standards. So we're going to keep it up. It was only when the family got in contact with a personal friend of theirs who happened to work at DHS. It wasn't even in his job description to handle this type of thing, but as a favor, he reached out to Twitter um, and also tried to get it taken down. And that's when Twitter got scared because he worked at DHS, so they took it down. But it took too long. All the kids from school saw it. They were mercilessly bullied. Um, It affected their whole lives. One of the boys, I believe, was suicidal for a time. And so this is scary, scary common. Um, And I think that parents underestimate the amount of effort a predator, predator is willing to go to to get in contact with their child. It's one of those things you just don't want to think about it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a problem. It's so dark and it's so disturbing. Most people don't even want to think about it. That's a huge reaction we've gotten from our investigations, even from people I personally know who um, are good people who want to support my work, who want to know what I'm up to. A lot of people are like, I just, I can't live there. You know, I can't, I can't live there mentally. And um, I think that people need to you know, I'm not asking people to live there like day in and day out, but they need to be aware of the issues, especially if you have kids and grandkids and and young family members, because this is, I think, one of the most dangerous things that we we're seeing in modern society is well, sexual many, exploitation online. Well, how many stories are out there of similar situations? And those families don't have any connection to law enforcement or anyone right. in a position of power where they can lean on these platforms and say, hey, we're going to, you need to do something about this. Exactly. And and how many families don't find out because Why would you average, want to tell your parents? Exactly. Like when I was a child, I probably wouldn't have told my parents and my parents, I think, did everything right. Like they were good parents. They cared about me. They told me that honesty was the best, that I need to be honest with them, that no one should ever touch me in any place where a bathing suit would cover. And I would need to tell them immediately if anyone did that to me. But I still don't think that if I had been, you know, uh, what's the term, just contacted by a trafficker online. And I sent a video that I shouldn't have sent. I still don't think I would have told my parents. It's really just not in a kid's nature to do that. So uh, there needs to be a heightened transparency dialogue between parents and kids about specifics of what can happen online, real life examples. Um, and 
parents really need to take the time to educate themselves on what can happen because we're not living in the 80s where, you know, dangerous were out there, but we're living now where, like, you could, your entire life could change just by your phone. At the drop of a hat. Yeah. It's, I think part of the challenge in all of this stems from the fact that we have people who did grow up through the 80s and who lived in those past generations writing the current laws. And mm-hmm. the issue is that they don't have a real understanding of just how fast technology is changing. They can't keep up. They can't. You're totally right. I think that's a big issue as well. And and a lot of um, lawmakers, <clears throat> even if they mean well, they just simply don't understand uh, the ins and outs of how someone can be exposed uh, or exploited online. So, you know, I'm taking efforts to speak with lawmakers to try to educate them. And, you know, we're getting good interest. There, there are some great people on both sides of the aisle that really are interested and engaged and want to hear. Um, so I am optimistic for the future of, of more legislation that can be passed that really covers the basis of how someone can be exploited because there's so many gray areas um, with all the AI, with predators contacting kids over Roblox, a gaming platform. The last place um, you would expect. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten reports of, um, or heard reports of kids being contacted on Roblox and being paid for sexual content in exchange for Roblox. Robux, I think is like the money on Roblox. Just insane. Yeah. Do you, now that you're kind of on the back end of this, at least you're not filming anymore, you've got all your work and you're putting it out there. Are you hopeful that this is going to enact change in a legislative form or do you hope that people are just going to be made more aware of the issue? What do you and Eric kind of want? From yeah, this we definitely forward? want legislative change. Um, laws need to be updated. Section 230 needs to be updated. Um, and what's really encouraging is that our videos are being used as evidence in class action suits against ALO um, for, for involvement in trafficking. So there was one class action out of California where um, the, the survivors of trafficking settled for a certain amount. I forget how much it was, but wasn't enough in my opinion. There's a new class action suit out of Alabama where um, they're, they're suing ALO for child sex trafficking. Lots of evidence of horrific sexual abuse being monetized on Pornhub and other ALO-owned sites. Um, horrific. I mean, so so that's encouraging. And as well, in that same case, Mike Farley and Dylan Rice have been subpoenaed um, due to our video, so they will have to testify under oath 
And um, let's hope Mike Farley decides to tell the truth because he did say that they have corporate lawyers who coach them to just say, I don't know, to everything. Yeah, that's pretty damning. Yeah. Do you, I mean, how has this affected you personally going through this investigation? I would imagine some of these things have to weigh on you in some form, no? Or can you kind of categorize it and separate yourself from the work that you're doing? I have learned to separate myself somewhat. Um, It's still like, if I sit and think about it and the little details of the abuse, it makes me sick like any decent human being, I think. Um, But... I think what cures that is just action Um, and thinking positively, like good things are happening slower than I think they should, but good things are happening. Good people are working to hold huge companies like this accountable and making it less of an incentive for abusers to monetize abuse videos on platforms like Pornhub. And I think that's a huge problem because when when you limit the amount of benefit an abuser can have from uploading an abuse video or abusing a child, like if if we made it so that definitely Pornhub could never host another abuse video again, how is that abuser going to make money off of it, like on a large scale? So. Hopefully that does some good. I think it will. There's still so much more work to be done. Like sexual exploitation is really complicated and multifaceted and no one thing is going to fix it. But hopefully this hits it at a high level, at least so that mass um, distribution and profit is way harder for an abuser. I think that's the only way to really enact any level of changes, you have to go after the money. Otherwise, where's the incentive? Exactly. Yeah. And as to this day, Visa and MasterCard do still do business with ALO, the parent company. So um, we're hoping that we can present enough evidence that would make them rethink their decision to still do business with ALO. Yeah, that would definitely hit them in the pocketbook, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... They stopped doing business with Pornhub, um, but they still are accepting payments for the other sites owned by ALO. So still more work to be done. Yeah, it almost feels like the work never ends, right? It doesn't. I don't think it ever will, but it is what it is. And all you can do is, is go for it and see what happens. And it's the story is inspiring that the two of you kind of took on this great effort and it goes to show that you can you can enact a lot of change if you're just willing to try and actually do the thing yeah what's crazy is like it really wasn't that hard it was just a matter of doing it um it's not very hard to contact people online and set up meetings it's just few people are willing to do it or think to do it Um, But we're willing to do it and we're hoping to grow to be able to hire more journalists to be even more effective and investigate a wider range of things. So that's our hope for 2024 is to grow. 
Well, Arden, thank you for coming on and talking with me. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Kind yeah, of a dark subject, you. but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find your videos on X, sound investigations, all your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're definitely most active on X. So I'm Arden underscore young underscore on X. And then sound investigations is sound investig on X because there's the character limit. Um, but I'm also on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. Um and then you can go to soundinvestigations.com to see all of our archive videos just in case our social media gets wiped. And you can also donate there, soundinvestigations.com slash donate. Anything helps, like we mentioned. Um, we're, re- we're completely self-funded out of a personal savings account. So anything helps to keep us going because we want to be able to double down on everything we've done and follow through with the lawmakers and attorneys general who have expressed interest in holding Pornhub accountable. Well, that's great. I Hopefully people will kind of back you guys because the content that you guys are putting out is, I think, pretty important. And you Thank pulling you. back the rug a little bit. I I have high hopes for where that goes. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Nick. Thanks for the support. 